0: My mama looked there You're playing in the street again Don't you know what happened down there A youth of 14 got shot down there The cocaine guns jammed downtown The killing clowns of blood money men the shooting goes Washington bullets again As every cell in Chile will tell The cries of the tortured men Remember a and the days before Before the army came Remember Victor Hara In the Santiago Stadium oh, was Washington bullets again This is Joseph L. Flatley and you are listening to Failed State Update coming to you in pre-recorded podcast form from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Just want to uh, remind you that I have a newsletter also called Failed State Update, that you should check out. Go to lennyflatley.substack.com to subscribe. And if you want to check out my other podcast, The So-Called Prophet from Pittsburgh, about a present-day UFO cult, or you want to check out any of my books, uh, please go to my website. It's uh, lennyflatley.net. Today we have an interview with, uh, with a foreign correspondent And award-winning journalist, according to his book flap Vincent Bevins He's uh, covered Southeast Asia for the Washington Post And uh, previously served as Brazil correspondent for the LA Times And before that, worked for Financial Times in London uh, His book, The Jakarta Method... ...should be a required reading for any failed state update listeners. The United States really became an empire beginning in the 50s under President Eisenhower. What the Jakarta Method does is really highlight the lengths that the United States government would go to reinforcing its rule in the various nations in the third world. In the case of Indonesia, you know, up to a million people were murdered, mostly because they were to the political left, and this bloodbath was overseen by the CIA and the U.S. State Department. I just hope that whoever oversees the next global empire, the next great global empire, has a little more of a conscience than we did during the Cold War. For the very first time, never when they had a revolution, we correct you. was no interference from America. Human rights in America. The
1: people thought the leader of the For whatever reason, and we could come to a sort of we could speculate as to what that reason is, we have no problem seeing crimes committed by communist regimes as part of some international conspiracy, right? Like, um, every time that a Marxist regime does something, it's the sort of standard discursive response is to lump it into one big category. But we never do that for the exact opposite side of the spectrum, right? So even though, to a much larger extent, I think it was true that anti-communism was an international movement, for some reason we treat each case as isolated and sort of a mistake rather than part of a larger more effective and efficacious system. So the case of Indonesia, I think, is the most important one. So I'm going to go back just maybe I'll go back just a little bit to introduce the whole country because, I mean, I didn't even really know much about what it was until I moved there. Indonesia is the former Dutch colonies in Asia. Uh, It used to be called the Dutch East Indies. Um, That's an incredibly important part of deep globalization, like the the trade routes going back hundreds of years. I mean, that's the Indies, like the spices. So this was a huge part of the deep origins of capitalism and the post-colonial order. So after World War II, um, when the Japanese retreated from Indonesia, which they had conquered, a president named Sukarno united these islands um, in a sort of anti-imperial, anti-colonial, left-leaning, but very um, pluralistic national project. And he, Sukarno, Sukarno's Indonesia was seen by Washington as a relatively tolerable force in the post-colonial world until the middle of the 1950s. And what happened in the middle of the 1950s is the Indonesian Communist Party is doing better and better at elections um, in Sukarno's multi-party democracy. And Sukarno starts to become a global leader of what is called... At the time, the third world movement, which is a movement to bring together all the countries that used to be colonized and to rise up in a very positive way against um, the first world, which is the group of white countries that used to colonize them or at least used to colonize some part of the world to sort of resist joining the second world, which is the communist um, countries aligned with Moscow. And to create this new, entirely different movement, which would change the rules of the the global economy um, and which would try to put all these nations in their rightful place on the world stage. So the CIA tries to crush the Indonesian left a couple of times in the 50s and fails both times. In 1955, they start funding a conservative Muslim party, me, and it doesn't work. The, The Indonesian Communist Party just keeps winning more and more elections, and we know from declassified files now that, that the CIA the CIA understood that the reason they were winning is because they were the best organizationally and the least corrupt, right? So they weren't they weren't tricking people. They were winning people's they were winning hearts and minds in the as the, the that saying goes. Uh, and then in 1958, the CIA bombs the country and tries to break it into pieces. Um, this also doesn't work because um, a, a pilot is caught. A man named Alan Pope crash lands into the beaches of Umbone. Um, a small pacific island that he and his CIA buddies had just um, where he and his CIA buddies had just massacred civilians a few days earlier and this discredits the entire operation and so for uh, the beginning of the 1960s there's this very um, precarious situation in the leader of the third world movement where Washington is sort of trying to maintain this alliance, but back home, people are very upset about it. Um, th- th- um, it's it's seen as something that needs to be resolved sooner or later. There's one part of side of the political spectrum that wants to keep Indonesia on side that thinks it's better just to be friendly with a post-colonial leader that is outspoken sometimes, and then there's others that think. He needs to be crushed and the existence of the Indonesian Communist Party is totally unacceptable. When JFK dies, the, the second group comes into power. So they they send in a new ambassador to Indonesia who everybody knows is sent there as a coup specialist. He's already done a coup in South Korea. Um, it's And the political system is very split between the, the the army which has been explicitly backed by the united states since 1958 and by the communist party which has the masses right um and so in 1965 what you see is an eruption of a conflict between these two groups which that cia and mi6 had been advocating for or agitating for covertly in ways we still don't really understand and that eruption is used as a pretext by the us-backed army to quite literally exterminate the largest communist party outside of China and the Soviet Union.
0: You know, still, when you hear communist party, you think Soviet-aligned. You, th- you know, you think you know you have all kinds of dastardly. You know, but but you're talking about something that is much more social democrat.
1: Yeah, and sort of the tragic thing about the Cold War is that that's who usually got killed, right? So, in the very early Cold War, the CIA, these upper class Yale guys. Um, they wanted to go after quote-unquote communism in the Eastern Bloc and they just kept failing over and over. They, just, they couldn't get in, right? They they found that when they would parachute guys into Albania or whatever it was that there was the secret police and they would get caught. And it's across the Cold War you can sort of make that broad characterization that the the movements that really get crushed, Guatemala, Chile, Indonesia tend to be unarmed moderate groups because they don't you know when the when the when the men with guns come for them they don't have any they don't have the means or the ideology that would allow them to defend themselves. So in the, in the case of the Indonesian Communist Party this is i mean totally forgotten now but it was the Indonesian Communist Party was the first party founded in Asia it was founded in 1914 before the Bolshevik revolution so it was founded as a social democratic party. And in a different universe you could see them becoming like the European Marxist parties that end up just participating in electoral politics forever, um, Germany Germany having the most moderate one, the SPD. But you know, you could also think about the Italian or French communists that you know would run small cities in the countryside and 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 very much participate in the quote unquote bourgeois order. And the the PKI's ideology was always to do this from the very beginning. Their their flavor of Marxism, Leninism, after they they did join the Comintern, indicated that they should help the national bourgeoisie overthrow imperialism, help to construct capitalism, and then try to do socialism much, much later. Um, This worked so well for the Indonesians that Moscow actually directed Mao to do the same thing. Moscow told Mao, hey, uh, you should collaborate with the nationalist forces. Uh, and offered Indonesia as a guide to why this would work. It obviously did not work in, in China. But this is this was this was deep, deep in their DNA. Um, they were they were not what you what an English speaker would think when you hear the word communist. They didn't they were not scheming at all times to overthrow the country, the, the government and violent revolution. They were supporters of the country. Or the, sorry, they were supporters of the president. If you grew up in certain neighborhoods of Indonesia and you had certain interests, like if you were into art or if you were into education or if you wanted to get into agriculture, it was incredibly likely that you would end up affiliated with the Communist Party. And this did not mean that you went through some sort of indoctrination. They, they were just that that's that was the union you joined if you worked in this sector. If you were from uh, certain regions with certain religious traditions, everyone was affiliated with the Communist Party. It was, it was absolutely not joining an underground cell of armed revolutionaries that knew that they were risking their lives. It was the exact opposite, um, which is why, as I said, the, the, the mass murder works. Nobody thought they were bad guys. Everybody thought, oh yeah, yeah, like I, uh, I'm, I'm in the teacher's organization. And um, that allowed them to be decimated, and it also, and their decimation led other parties around the world to reconsider their tactics, right? So we've all forgotten about the Indonesian Communist Party, but in 1965, everybody was watching. This was the largest party outside of China and the Soviet Union. And parties from Latin America to Asia looked at this and thought, Oh, does this mean we have to be armed, or else we're going to get killed? And and that is one of two sort of waves that um, emanate from the the massacre that I analyze in the book, and the other being the the far right forces that come to the conclusion of, oh yeah, we could just do that. We can um we can kill all of our political enemies, deny it, and as long as we're uh, sufficiently anti-communist and pro-Washington, we're going to get away with it. No one no one. You know, if Suharto, the, the general that ended up taking over his dictator in Indonesia, if Suharto could kill a million innocent people and, and, and you know, nothing happens to him. Well, we can certainly do that in Chile and in Brazil and Central America. And um, that's yeah, that's the sort of the what the book is about is the not only the the horribleness of this event, but the ways that it reformulated both sides of the political spectrum. For the next, for you know, for the decades that came afterwards.
0: Could you uh, kind of explain the event and also the United States's role in it?
1: As I said, the 1958 CIA invasion failed. That invasion was failed on the the successful coup in Guatemala in 1954, but it didn't work. Indonesia, for whatever reason, it was too big. The army was too de- dedicated. It just didn't work. So they switched. They shifted tactics entirely, and the new tactics involved bringing thousands of Indonesian military officers to train in Kansas, where they would hopefully become more pro-American and more anti-communist. And to, it seems, to a large extent, this worked. Now, so as you go through the early '60s, you have Sukarno, who's making a lot of waves in the region because he is he he sees the task of decolonization as unfinished. Um, he successfully wrests control of West Papua away from the Dutch. And then Great Britain forms Malaysia. And the formation of Malaysia is marked by the kind of imperial machinations that a lot of people might be familiar with in, in Africa and the Middle East, where they draw lines across national boundaries so to so as to weaken their enemies. Right. So Malaysia is created in a, in a way that is... That, very explicitly meant to weaken the left in Southeast Asia. And Sukarno sees this as a threat to himself. And, you know, he's, this is often characterized as a big mistake that he made, but I mean, he, people were trying to kill him all the time. The CIA had bombed his country. I mean, you would probably be paranoid too, right? I mean, the CIA had authorized his assassination, uh, you know he so he so he picks a fight with Great Britain, and this on top of Johnson's um, turn away from Su- Su- Sukarno really spell, spell the end of the the partnership that he had with the West through the first um, twenty years of Indonesia's existence, and what we know is that in the years so up to the events of. September 30th, 1965, which is the real turning point. In the year up up to that um, eruption of violence, both the CIA and MI6 were agitating behind the scenes uh, through disinformation campaigns and other ways that we still don't know about. These, these files are still classified, but the goal was to cause a clash between the army and the PKI, the Indonesian Communist Party, and everybody knew that if there was a clash, the PKI would lose because they're a mass-based protest party. They're not—they're not ready for a civil war. They're not even ready to run away if the cops come knocking on their door. They're a fully civilian party, and so we don't know the form that this takes. And and the the book, as you know, is told through the stories of a lot of people that lived through this um, these events. People they were either somehow involved in the party or very involved in the party just living in Jakarta at the time and what they tell me about 1965 is that there was just rumors all over the place everybody was talking about the possibility of a right-wing coup possibility of a CIA invasion the possibility of this or that plot it was just everything was very tense and a lot of people were very afraid that something was being hatched again we know that CIA and MI6 wanted people to think this so it may be the case that that's what my interviewees are remembering or maybe the case that there were plots we just we don't really know and we're not going to know until the CIA tells us and I imagine they're not going to tell us until no one cares anymore uh, I called to ask them uh, they unsurprisingly didn't tell me um, and what you have on the on The late night hours of September 30th is a group that calls itself the September 30th movement that is led by lower level um, army officers. In the attempt to kidnap higher level army officers, seven generals, six generals die. To this day, we don't know why they were killed, if that was really the intent or who, who ordered them killed. But in, this, in the very brief period where this so-called September uh, 30th movement uh, is an apparent attempt to kidnap these generals, they claim that those generals were planning a right-wing coup and that they were going to stop them. Now, to this day, we have no idea really what the September 30th movement was. We know that it was led by members of the military. We know that it immediately was crushed by General Husu Harto. A right wing general who for some reason was not targeted by them. We know that he was friends with the leaders of the movement. We don't know if we don't know what the reason is that he was not targeted. It could have been that he told them it would be fine. It could have been that they thought he wasn't important. It could have been that he was really behind the whole thing. We we again there's theories are theories abound as to what really happened. But we know that the clash that MI6 and CIA wanted happened. And we know that as soon as it happened. The U.S. Embassy in Jakarta saw this as their opportunity to finally crush the left, and so when they begin to receive reports, well, first of all, in these early crucial days when Suharto was trying to establish that he's now the leader of the country, even though Sukarno is still the president, he is um, offered material support by the U.S. government that give him walkie-talkies to spread his his message that this was actually a communist coup. And that the, the communists need to be crushed. He, and he's immediately recognized by the United States government. And he spreads this very insane story, which is almost too good to have been made up at the time. And people think that this must have been concocted sort of in advance because it's, it's, it's too perfect. He shuts down all media that the army doesn't control and he tells the whole country – That this was not an uprising of junior officers that thought they were stopping a coup. This was a, a, a communist attempt to take over the country. And really what happened is those generals that died were taken, tortured by communist women in a satanic, deviant sexual orgy. They were castrated as part of this communist celebration And now the whole country has to come together to crush the Communist Party. The vast majority of the Communist Party, and I mean like 99.9% of them, had no idea what had happened in Jakarta. Um, And we're just hearing about it the same way everyone else was. They're hearing these news reports. Now the army army and police start arresting en masse anyone who's on the left. And people go in. Often willingly, this is these are the the people that I met. I mean, it, it, it varied from region to region, but a lot of people just went in. Well, okay,'ll I'll come and give an interview all. I'm happy to explain what I was doing. No, I'm not in that organization that you said did that thing. And instead of just being imprisoned, the they are taken out at night to be martyred. Now, the United States government, as they start to hear that this is happening I mean again we don't know it we don't know everything that they know but we know that they, they get reports that this is happening they are encouraged by it and encourage more of it they make it very clear to Suharto that his recognition on the global stage is contingent upon the further crushing of the Communist Party as it's clear that the way that they're doing this is mass murder the CIA um, the CIA Bangkok office author- authorizes the supply of weapons to the in the army but they don't they don't need them they already are a fully US backed US trained organization but if they needed it it was there and um we know from a later testimony given by a state department employee that they passed lists to the party of people that that could be checked off as were murdered and then finally when this is all done When it's when the Communist Party is sufficiently Crushed so as to allow Suharto to take over And I think this is an important th- Part that people f- get confused it, it wasn't like an orgy of violence That happened after Suharto took power The, the violence allowed him to Take power, right? So before Before the massacre the Indonesian Communist Party Had about 25 to 30% Of the country either In the party or somehow affiliated with it You couldn't you couldn't just say I'm the I'm the president now, and have it work. Um, it was only through this war of attrition that they carried out against the Indonesian Communist Party that Suharto was eventually able to take power. And when he did, he was immediately recognized by Washington and Wall Street and all the company, you know, U.S. companies poured in for for fancy conferences and started to exploit Indonesian natural resources and Suharto became one of the most important allies of the United States in the Cold War even as one million people were um, still in concentration camps including a lot of people that I got to know for my book and the whole thing just dropped off dropped off the map for the rest of the 20th century no one talked about Indonesia again to this day you know it's not only like my friends that I went to middle school with that don't really know much about Indonesia. It's like editors at the New York Times or Washington Post. It's just it's people don't know anything about this country, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it's the country where the U.S. participated in probably its worst atrocity of the last hundred years.
0: So the the CIA and the United States, you know, encouraged and enabled this uh these events what how long was suharto in power
1: until 1998 right and there's still a continuity between there is military continuity right so the the indonesian military there's a direct line from 1965 to now they're still incredibly powerful their their interpretation of events is the same as it was in 1965 they still insist upon the propaganda that was used to carry out the the mass murder, rather than uh, any recognition of the crimes they committed. But since nineteen ninety eight, there's also been a re-democratization. So now there is a president. Um, that this president that was elected, he's very much an Obama figure, not only because he like really looks like Obama, and they're just very they're very similar in 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 personality. When he was elected. 2013, although it might be 2014, it was thought that maybe he would finally turn the page on this and apologize and start some kind of a reconciliation, um, a process of national reconciliation or open a truth commission. None of that happened, and and it's become pretty clear the reason it didn't happen is because the military is still too powerful to, to allow it to happen. So, in in the broadest sense, you're absolutely right. It's it's the the people that did it won, and the people that where the victims are still told they it, they deserved what happened to them.
0: And when did the uh, Jakarta method begin to be implemented elsewhere on the globe?
1: So, I mean, so the Jakarta method, right? So the, the use of the word Jakarta to denote right-wing terror carried out against left-wing civilians starts in the early 70s in Chile and Brazil at the exact same time. But it's also it, it's also a sort of a. Um, that's a narrative strand that works for my book, but it's it's not the case that every. This was always called Jakarta, right? So you you have going back to 1954, you have reports that the U.S. ambassador after the coup in Guatemala, handed lists to the Guatemalan military telling them who they would kill. Um, in 1963, when the Ba'ath party takes over in a coup, we also have reports that the CIA gave the the party that a young Saddam Hussein was assisting in mass murder lists of communists and leftists that they could um, destroy. But, but the apex of this story, the apex of this violence, the emblematic case, which became a global reference, was Jakarta, quote unquote Jakarta in 1965-66. And we see this exact language being used during the presidency of Salvador Allende. So when Allende is elected in 1970, and again, precisely what worries the CIA when he is elected is that his form of democratic socialism will be successful and might inspire other countries to try it. As he takes office, there is US backed terror against him within the country, and the Brazilian military, which took over in the 1964 coup, is assisting the Chilean military in preparations for a possible coup. As these two groups are working together, you see the uh, emergence of the Jakarta metaphor on the streets of Santiago, and being whispered here in Sao Paulo, where I am now. So in the most terrifying and obvious way, if you were a socialist or worked in the Allende administration, you might have somebody come up to your house and spray paint on the walls, Jakarta is coming. Or you might get a postcard in the mail that said the same thing. And and by then, the message was pretty clear. It was, we're going to kill you, right? Um, in Brazil, you had Operação Jakarta, which, which we have reports was a, a scheme to kill communists in the active in the Brazilian dictatorship. And in both cases, it, Jakarta came, right? Like, it, it, it happened. It worked. And just as I said a moment ago, if, if anybody thought that they could get away with this and that the US would play defense for them, they were right. It's exactly what happened. Um, with the eruption of violence in Chile in 1973, you have the consolidation of the Pinochet regime um, in 1975. Brazil, Chile, and a bunch of other South American countries form Operation Condor, which is a international terror network that allows them to kill dissidents even if they leave, even if they cross the border. Right. So they're killing tens of thousands of their own people in Argentina. But what happens if a quote unquote enemy of the people makes it into Uruguay or Bolivia? Well, you know, we have we have uh, we have the mechanisms to do that in the United States. Provided crucial into, um, technological equipment for this operation, and then finally the the sort of the, the this horrible this, this horrible wave of, of this horrible wave of death and, and violence makes it up to Central America, where the numbers are the worst in the Western Hemisphere. So you get hundreds of thousands of dead and in, and in, um, Civil wars in the United States backyard um, in the '80s, and these are often the communities that send their immigrants to the United States now. Um, so it it really is, you know, like uh, the way I visualize it is like this kind of this wave that's building across the world in um, from the '50s to the early '60s. It really just it breaks in Indonesian six in 1965. And then it washes over the rest of the quote-unquote third worlds until the end of the Cold War.
0: I mean, is it just that it's currently not the best strategy for, you know? Like, why did it stop, you know? Why did it stop happening?
1: I think it's a good question. I think that um, even though they were wrong, even though it was inaccurate, and they often knew it was inaccurate... Washington often acted as if the Soviet Union was an existential threat to the, quote-unquote, American way of life. And I think when they told themselves that this or that country could fall into an enemy camp, that justified a much more violent level of intervention than we've seen in countries of that type since. However... If you were, so, so when I say of that type, I mean, you know, the US backed a coup in Honduras in 2009, a coup in Venezuela in 2002. Do I think that it would have been, well, Honduras is Honduras has really, really suffered since since that coup. However, I, I don't think that the United States would let Venezuela, you know, Juan Guaido get away with um, mass murder uh, if he were to take over Venezuela right now. I'm not sure. Maybe they would. However the existential threat that took the place of communism from, you know, 2001 to 2020, um, whatever, you know, radical Islam, Islam itself, that justified hundreds of thousands of deaths, right? So the war in Iraq killed hundreds of thousands of people and that, that was considered justified. It wasn't, it wasn't rounding them up and, and taking them up one by one, but, you know, it was very, very brutal. So. I think that you you see a a shift in um, a shift in priorities as to what is acceptable, right? So, when communism is enemy number one of the United States, it's acceptable to kill 500,000 to a million people uh, in Indonesia to kill two million innocent civilians and collateral damage in Vietnam. Now, still, you're definitely going to you know still Washington has shown itself willing to intervene in Latin America for in order to sort of maintain the contours of U.S. hegemony in the Western Hemisphere or to maintain a favorable business environment for U.S. companies. But it was when world enemy number one became Islam, or a certain version of um, Muslim extremism, that the same kind of violence was justified there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just seems like Washington is going to avail itself of whatever tools it has whatever army it has like the military technologically and how it's organized it you know is a lot different than it was 40 years ago you made a really good point about you know if thousands and thousands of people die in a war in the middle east as opposed to being rounded up and shot in indonesia it's still you know, it's still mass slaughter for for the U.S.'s gain. Yeah, and
1: I think it's like uh, when I try to when I explain what happened in Indonesia nineteen sixty five, I always tell the story of the three the three different attempts, right? Because I, I I think for a lot of people, especially U.S. citizens, it's hard. It would be hard to believe that they would just like choose to murder a million people, and they actually didn't, right? Like they they tried other stuff first. And it was only this this final solution, which had emerged as a possibility in the moment of crisis that they that they got behind it. Right. And I think that the toolbox available to the hegemon is larger than it was in the 60s. But even then, the first thing they tried in Indonesia was to just give money to the party that they like. And the second thing they tried was to kind of break up the country with Um, sporadic military operations. And I think, I mean, defenders of the CIA will say, oh, well, now we have, um, we don't have to always do coups. Now we have the National Endowment for Democracy or USAID, which are able to put pressure in very uh, significant ways without having to resort to that kind of skull. It's called Duggery. It's called Druggery. Skull,
0: skull Duggery.
1: Dug, skull Duggery. Yeah, and, um, and you know, like, and I think that that's I think that scans with the way that a lot of even critical U.S. Ooh. citizens, the way that a lot of U.S. Uh, citizens think about their government is that they wouldn't choose first of all to go for the mass extermination program, right? If there are other if there are other uh, there are other things available, they're going to try those first. I mean, Juan Guaidó in Venezuela, I think he's a good example. Like, they've tried all these, you know, it's kind of been like escalating stuff, right? Like, first they just declared him the president, and then they they tried this very provocative um, aid convoy that was headed at the border uh, with Colombia. And then they, you know, people on the Colombian side of that, uh, convoy lit the convoy on fire. Then Marco Rubio on Twitter blamed it on Maduro and tried to use that to to, to fire up some kind of a um, attempt at regime change. So like you see, that's in a. I think this is a pattern which is important to recognize in the history of U.S. covert operations and covert operations in general. There's a incorrect. Uh, Affirmations sometimes that the CIA is all powerful, that they do whatever they want, that they engineer everything. The real superpower that, that the, the CIA has is impunity, right? They're allowed to just keep trying different stuff and they never get in trouble, right? So they can try this, they can try that, they can fail, they can try stupidly, they can try more stupidly, they can try one more time. And if they're eventually able to succeed, then great. And if they fail, then it doesn't matter. There's no, there's no consequences. So that is, I think, uh, a really defining characteristic of the era of U.S. hegemony. It's not really that you have to always do what the U.S. wants, but if but you ha- you only get one chance. If you mess up in opposition to the hegemon, you're probably done for. Uh, however, if you are the hegemon, or in a, or in or in alliance with the hegemon, you get to keep going. Uh, you get as many tries as you need
0: and uh you're in brazil right now yeah no i'm uh so i'm i was supposed to be
1: on a book tour right now um but that's all canceled so i i came back to sao paulo to do an article about bolsonaro in february for the new york review of books and then i was going to go to chile where they're having a referendum they were having a referendum to overthrow the pinochet constitution uh, and then i was going to go on a book tour and all that's canceled so i just stayed here um I'll figure out like how to leave later. But I mean, I I just figured it was like the most responsible thing for me to do would be just to to stay put and, and, you know, do podcasts from this like abandoned, uh, office building in in, like the very, very, uh, dark center of Sao Paulo at the moment. It's like, it's not a, it's not a good scene.
0: Being in central and South America, you must really be, you know, still seeing the remnants of American imperialism firsthand.
1: Yeah, I mean, Bolsonaro is the president, right? Um, this affects my life every single day and not for the better. Um, this This technology of pretending that there's an international communist conspiracy in order to justify and consolidate power is still very much in use so a couple weeks ago bolsonaro's foreign minister in the middle of the night like stayed up all night writing like a very long blog post about a new Slavoj, zizek book that he read and he he used his i don't know what caffeine or whatever else driven blog post um, to affirm that he had discovered in Zizek's book that coronavirus is a communist plot, and so um, instead of instead of the old Marxist-Leninist formula that there would be socialism then communism, now it's going to be globalism then communism, and coronavirus will be used to sneak in globalism. And if we're not valiant and blah 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 blah, we're going to wake up tomorrow in the Gulag. And like he's the foreign minister, and this is like a this is a country that ten years ago when I first moved here. Was like a widely respected, modern, forward thinking, diplomatic power. But this, these dark forces returned in a big way all of a sudden. And like, yeah, it's every day. Like it's, he's the, he's the president here. And like, um, his son recently in Congress, um, put forward a bill to outlaw communism and his inspiration for that was Indonesia. He wanted to reproduce the legislation that Indonesia has had on its books since October, 1965 or in the the, the immediate aftermath of the, uh, you know, while the violence was still happening. So it's not, this is another thing I try to drive home for us readers. It's like, imagine if, you know, imagine if the KGB bombed, Pittsburgh in the late fifties and then carried out mass murder in Florida in the sixties. And, you know, we think of it as a long time when it's somewhere else, but it's not a long time. It's not a long time for, for those of the, the, for the countries that lived through it. Right. Like there's this really weird, like there's a, there's this hand waving that comes along with just the phrase Cold War in the English language. They're like, oh yeah, well that was the Cold War, as if that means it doesn't count or it didn't, you know? Say, so, oh, yeah, yeah, it was the Cold War, as if that 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 allows for its removal from history. It's like, no, 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 it's right here, and everybody knows it's here. And this is the thing. I mean, this is what I told you about being the um, call. I was finishing this op-ed for the New York Times. You know if so they publish it, but like that. Not only do we not recognize that it matters for everybody else, we don't recognize that everybody else knows about this stuff, and that's that's very dangerous. I think if if the the U.S. goes into this kind of confrontation with China, thinking that the rest of the world views us the way that we view ourselves, right? Like everybody down here knows what it is. You know, for example, both you know, this would this this always annoys sort of liberals and Democrats if I when I post it on Twitter, but like. At Bolsonaro rallies in Brazil, okay, let me see if you can guess. They they wave three flags uh, at their rallies to indicate that they're on the on the hard right. Brazilian flag and two other countries. Can you guess which, which countries it is?
0: Um, I mean, uh, wow, I don't know. American flag. Um, yep. Uh, I- Indonesia.
1: No, 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 no. It's another I country though
0: iraq
1: israel, israel 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 yeah so so like if you're on the brazilian far right the way to indicate that you're part of this global right-wing movement is you wave the american flag, right like everybody in and in south america everyone knows that's what it means right every time that american government has had a hand in choosing outright a government in south america it's always a hard right government and like that's not what the New York Times reader thinks America stands for. And I think that contradiction is dangerous between the, the, the reputation we have really and the reputation we think we have.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, um, you know, America being the big bully, you know, at the top, you know, doesn't have to take in anything. You know, Americans don't have to learn anything about the world or how America is seen in the world. We're just sitting at top, at the top, uh, you know, reaping the benefits of, you know, this hegemon. And, you know, and I think it's making us in a real practical way, weaker as a country, like what you just uh, described. I mean, that explains a lot of like, I think like the craziness that's coming out of Washington and the Pentagon, you know, like not having a sense of, or, you know, even Project of the New America Century or the whole neocon thing It's based on a vision of the world that exists in a lot of Americans' heads, but doesn't actually exist in the real world. I think.
1: Yeah, and like um, in the book for the research, I end up meeting this guy named Frank Wisner Jr. and and his and his father was the the original Doctor Evil of American Empire. His his father created the CIA's covert operations program and oversaw the most famously awful parts of it. And I met his son, who is now a retired diplomat, works in New York. And even though he defended that his father believed he was doing the right thing. And I think I, I, I also believe that he believed he was doing the right thing, but I also believe that Stalin and Hitler thought that too. Um, uh, he was all, he was remarkably, what he said is remarkably, remarkably similar to what you just said. He said, look, the United States, he called it the land of the great amnesiac. And he said that our privilege has given us the apparent ability to forget everything we do and forget how much it matters to other people. And that's a real problem. So while he you know, didn't want to say, oh, my father, uh, is guilty of atrocities or whatever, he, he he basically said the exact same thing that you did, is that it is irresponsible and untenable the, the extent to which we forget what we've done to other people like 20 minutes ago. I mean, and in, in the Indonesia story, this is a huge part of it. So, like, in the early 60s, Congress could not understand why Sukarno was so suspicious of the United States. And this was, like, two years after the CIA tried to break the country into pieces. Like, imagine how long Americans would hate, I don't know, France, if France bombed the United States and tried to break it into pieces. It would be longer than two years. It would probably be a 1,000 years, right? I mean, and they they saw it as this kind of like, in a very racist and condescending way, by the way, and, and, and it won't surprise you to hear that it was explicitly racist at times. <laughs> It was considered like he was this immature child that didn't, you know, he didn't know how he's biting the hand that feeds him. Doesn't he understand that we're helping, we want to help him and stuff? Because he was paranoid about a country that tried to bomb and assassinate him just a couple of years previously. So I think it's a, a time bomb. And I think, I mean, this, it's been very interesting during this pandemic because China has like very quiet, not quietly, but very gradually started to turn its propaganda. Um, capabilities on the United States, like in a very mild way, China has started to really kind of blame the United States for its response or to even spread conspiracy theories that the United States caused it, blah, blah, blah. But I think if they really turned on the big guns, we would be really shocked how much material there is. I think if Ch- if China really wanted to like say that we are a settler colony, a genocidal settler colony that keeps 2 million people in prison, um, vastly overrepresents its black population in jails is is currently bombing seven seven countries if they weren't on like twitter and were like blasting that stuff out to the world um it would all be correct and i think we'd be really surprised how much there is and i think that that is a uh time bomb is the wrong word but i think that the the the, it is very tenuous are are like the the extent to which we memory whole things is is I don't think it's gonna be sustainable in the long like, there's got there's gonna be a, some kind of a rude awakening in the long term, I think. And I think that's even kind of like why they let me write this book. You know, like I didn't like I'm not the first person to figure this stuff out. I mean I think I made some new connections across countries and with my particular interviews and with my particular global context. But like the question of US um complicity and guilt in these crimes has pretty much been well known for a very long time. But I think there's maybe something about this world historic moment that allows for a little bit of reflection. Uh, maybe even Trump's presidency allowed for, okay, well, maybe America is bad. What, what, like, maybe America is bad. Let's hear that side of the story. You know, let's, let's let somebody make that case. Whereas I don't think you would. I'm not sure that a liberal in New York publishing house would have wanted to to do that um, under Obama. I'm not yeah. sure.
0: Yeah, and it's you know it's really just strikes me struck me reading this book and then just. Still hearing about Russia Gate, and you know, and it's just so amazing. Like you know, what you know, what the U.S. media and what the you know pe- people in the government are characterizing Russia Gate as this like democracy destroying grand yeah, yeah, yeah. evil genius yeah. theme. and it's like it's projection. Yeah, yeah absolutely.
1: <laughs> I mean, like, it's like well. Well, this was this was true in the in the in the Cold War too. The CIA told themselves constantly, like, well, the the Soviet Union must be doing this if we are, but they weren't. You know, there's no way, you know the Soviet Union absolutely was not like parachuting people into Kansas and and trying to like incite rebellions and things. They would they they knew that would be suicide. And I think I think that I mean, I I learned just enough Russian to. I took a couple of years of Russia in Sao Paulo because I thought I was going to go live in Russia. And I ended, when I ended up going there, the secret police followed me around for a couple days, which put a damper on that plan. But I knew enough people in Russia that when Russia happened in early 2017, I was like, well, it's OK. All right. So I found an excuse to go out there and I talked to all my Russian correspondent friends and I was like, is this real? What's going on? You know, what? And they're like, no, uniquely, and they're, like, Un uniquely they're like, no, this is we're getting kind of our marching orders from Washington and we have to sort of pretend like this story is. Valid, but we all know that Putin is not that. He is not Dr. Evil, right? Like, he does not have that much power. He's not that well organized. There might have been some kind of like small programs that, you know, while deplorable, of course, like, you don't, know, it's not cool to run ads on Facebook in another country's election. I think the extent to which it like really dominated liberal media. From 2017 to 2019 is a, was is indicative of a crisis of of confidence in U.S. liberalism, right? Like, because rather than look at like reasons one through ten that Trump was elected, we had to like fall back on this muscle memory from the Cold War of like the evil boxer from Rocky, you know, that is like the most evil person in the world, and blame some foreigner. And like, yeah, like, like I said, while Vladimir Putin is you know, sucks and is far from blameless in 2016, it seemed like a really worrying reaction, you know, to instead of try to figure out what it was about him, you know, that led so many Americans to vote for Donald Trump, then then just to put the entire thing on this, on this, on this darkly evil foreign entity, which conveniently happened to be the same race as our last darkly evil foreign entity before before the muslims yeah i mean i'm not i'm not um i'm not i'm not it was i didn't find it encouraging
0: yeah. right right yeah and you know the way that in the united states the COVID 19 issue is has been so politicized it's you know it's like wearing mask is now a cold is a code word for being a liberal you know both yeah. sides you know people you know the li- liberal twitter loves mask shaming and then like i have friends that like work out in like rural areas that you know people see them wearing a mask and they give them hell and and even like the uh, the uh, open up protests the reopen the economy protests are just obviously like astroturf yeah lightning. it's
1: very it's like i mean i am not a defender of the chinese communist party I want to make that clear before i make this next point <laughs> But when I lived in Asia for just a couple of years, it, what's striking out there is like oh no some people just like aren't Democrats they like don't believe democracy is good right they' like they're like no it's a waste of resources. you end up fighting with yourself the whole time and and it's better just if everyone gets behind you know one thing or whatever. And while obviously as an American it's like I'm constitutionally really incapable of agreeing with that, all of those people, when they look at what's happening in the U.S. right now, they are they can point to evidence for their side, right? It's like, what in what for what reason would you ever have a partisan debate as to whether or not chloroquine or chlor- I don't know how you pronounce it in English, in Brazil it's, it's chloroquina, but like it's it's the similar like you have a partisan line as to what extent there should be a lockdown and like both sides agree that there should be some amount of measures. Right. But then there's a line that divides the country into two big hostile camps and like what kind of a political system transforms banal, not banal, but like entirely a political questions, like, you know, what medicine works into partisan battles. Right. And, if you're if you're like if you're one of the guys in the Chinese Communist Party that's been saying for thirty years like don't do democracy it's gonna fuck up like you're gonna get a buffoon in charge and you're gonna waste all your time fighting with each other, the the attitudes and the activities uh, on display in the United States in the last ten years, man like you put that in your you know throw that in your PowerPoint presentation because like it it's a it's like convi- it's convincing <laughs> and I don't like that I don't like that but I mean you, you have to recognize like what do you, like, why would there, I mean, Brazil is the same thing, by the way. We, we actually, we were ahead of the curve on this. So Bolsonaro was participating in anti, anti-lockdown protests before they even really took off in the U.S. And there's a back and forth between the two political movements. But it's like, but again, here, the partisan debate is so like here. If you believe that chloroquine or chloroquine, I don't know how you pronounce it. Do you know how, you pronounce, how do you pronounce it in English?
0: A uh, Hydrochloroquine. We hi, quine, yeah, sure. quine, hydrochloroquine. I
1: guess. Sure. Yeah. In Brazil, if you believe that chloroquine is good for you, then you're on the right, and if you believe it's bad, then you're on the left. Like, it's <laughs> that. Since you know, it's it is. I don't think it's a small problem. Mm-hmm. I think that is indicative of a real crisis in the in the ideological structures of of the type of globalization that we got as a result of the cold war. And that's what this book is ultimately about. Right. So it tells the story of the massacre and the way that the massacre had consequences elsewhere, but it's really a a story about the nature of us led globalization. Uh, And I wish, I wish that story wasn't so important right now, but I think we are at a moment where it's like, Oh no, it is important to step back and be like, okay, what is this order? What is this, this system we created since 1945 led by us, violence and and sometimes the uh you know lots of stick sometimes carrot what is what is that thing that we we built and is that really what we need to desperately try to claw back from rising asia like uh well let's 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 think about it for for a little bit
0: Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Failed State Update. I'm your host, Joseph L. Flatley. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lenny Flatley. Or if you're interested in my books, my newsletter, my stories that I've written, all my journalistic endeavors, uh, check me out on my website, lennyflatley.net.